Rachel Thompson, Associate Pastor for Youth and Young Adults at Second Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. You're listening to our podcast, Second on the Mount. It is my deeply held belief that the Word of God has something unique and powerful to offer to and through each one of us. It's my belief that the Word of God has something to offer you. My prayer is that God will use these human words of ours to bring encouragement, wisdom, and hope for the journey ahead. Thanks for listening, and subscribe if you enjoy. We're glad you're with us. Let us pray. Holy God, in Jesus, your word made flesh, you have come to meet us where we are. Through this word, read and proclaimed, come and meet us again. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg, I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, a hundred jugs of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. This is the word of the Lord. I was in 10th grade when I first read The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Machiavelli writes, Let a prince have the credit of conquering and holding his state. The means will always be considered honest, because the vulgar are always taken by what a thing seems to be, and by what comes of it. Which, if you boil it down, you get the truism with which Machiavelli is most infamously associated, the ends justify the means. In my 15-year-old idealism, I was ready to jump on poor Niccolo's case. The ends do not justify the means. How could you believe something so Machiavellian? That's ridiculous. It was hard for me to hear the more subtle point that, like it or not, human security and flourishing are often achieved at the price of compromise. 
At the end of the day, it's the people who are able to play the middleman, those who can get the best outcome for the most people who get the praise. Reading our passage from Luke today feels almost like we've accidentally taken an excerpt from the prince instead of from the Bible. There's a rich man who hears a rumor that his middle manager debt collector is slacking on the job. He tells the manager that he's fired, and that's when the manager gets tricky. He decides to go to the debtors who owe astronomical sums and reduce their bills significantly so that when he's dismissed as the manager, they will, for some reason, welcome him into their homes. And at this point, the rich man comes back and praises the manager for being shrewd or prudent. Even Jesus, who's narrating this story, chimes in with a compliment for the manager and tells his disciples to make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, what on earth does this parable mean? You are in good company. Just about every commentary I looked at this week said something to the effect of, yeah, nobody knows what this means at all. (laughs) So today, we're going to venture into the realm of guesswork. We come into this story directly off of the parables in chapter 15 of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. So when we hear that the manager is misbehaving, that he's lost, we have a good idea of what to expect. This must be a parable about God's forgiveness. God seeks out and saves the lost. We learned that already. So the hero of this story must be the rich man, who, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, has shown forgiveness towards an undeserving person who takes one small step back in the right direction. But by the time we reach the end of the passage and Jesus praises not the boss, but the dishonest manager, now the tables are turned, and this is the part that trips scholars up. They start twisting themselves into knots trying to come up with an explanation. They say, okay, maybe, maybe the manager was supposed to get a cut of the money he collects. So when he reduces the debt, he's just sacrificing his profit, which would please the boss just fine, but maybe not so much the debtors who are still required to pay an astronomical sum. Okay, or maybe, maybe the whole system is unjust. You know, God has always told the Jews not to take advantage of people through charging exorbitant interest. So maybe the manager is forgiving the interest on what the debtors owe. And the manager is like like a Robin Hood figure, you know, leading an economic revolution against unjust financial practices. Which sounds nice. Except why then is the rich man so pleased with him? A better attempt at explanation I got actually not from my books, but from Daniel Gunn while we were discussing this passage at a young adult's dinner this week. He said, well, I run a business, and sometimes you just know you're not going to get a full payment from somebody. If someone could help me get 80% or even half of what's owed, I'd be happy with that. 
But still, we're left with the question, why does Jesus commend the manager's behavior to his disciples? Are we supposed to see the manager as good or bad? Which is actually the best explanation that my commentaries agree on. That you can't always tell who or how is right. Last week, George spoke about baptism as the marker of Christian identity. And he talked about how early Jewish Christians were faced with a decision between two ideals that they held dear. The traditions and customs, like circumcision and particular dietary restrictions, were central to their understanding of how to live in right relationship with God. But here was this new ideal This inclusive message of the gospel that expanded to include Jews and Gentiles alike. Which commitment was more important? And in the end, nobody got exactly what they wanted. The Jews compromised on circumcision. The Gentiles compromised on meat sacrificed to idols. And slowly but surely, the church took a step in a new direction. I bet... It didn't feel right to most people. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Maybe that's why Jesus lifts up the dishonest manager as the example to emulate. Because there's a certain kind of shrewdness, a certain kind of know-how, a certain kind of practical wisdom that's necessary for accomplishing the work of the kingdom here on earth. The kingdom of heaven doesn't just happen because righteous people do everything perfectly. It happens slowly, inch by inch. To follow Jesus, not just in your heart, but actually in your life, in the world, is to make small decisions that will often feel blurry, uncertain, like a compromise. Decisions that might not always make sense or look good to everyone but ultimately decisions that are moving in the right direction. Maybe Jesus isn't calling us to be idealists. Maybe Jesus is calling us to get to work. It's not that our ideals are wrong or unimportant. It's just that it turns out that maybe there is something even more important than our ideals. For the dishonest manager, the ideal that matters most is not turning in a perfect receipt to his boss. The ideal that matters most to him is meeting the debtors where they're at and being welcomed into their homes. Maybe when we find ourselves asking, are we doing this right? We have to also ask, are we reaching people? Are we meeting them on their home turf? Are we facilitating reconciliation and faith? Or are we missing people? I've seen what I think is a great example of faithfully asking these kinds of questions in our confirmation teaching team this year. Confirmation has long been an incredibly significant aspect of the life of this and many churches. 
Our teachers and staff believe deeply that for our eighth graders, dedicating a significant period of time to thinking about their personal understanding of faith, learning deeply, making faith their own, is hugely important and can make a difference for the rest of their lives. This commitment has been reflected in the year-long course that we have offered for just about as long as anybody can remember. But over the last maybe decade, it's been getting harder and harder for the class to meet the students where they're at. Life and schedules have shifted, so it's been more difficult for families to get their kids to class regularly. Their families want them to have this experience. It matters to them. But the parameters of the course have limited who we've been able to reach and how much content we've been able to teach them. This was discouraging for our confirmation teachers who have dedicated their hearts and time to this ideal. But instead of giving up or fighting harder to keep the same format on principle, they started asking questions. They said, okay, something isn't working here. And what we want most is to help our young people connect with God. What if we try something new? So for this year, we're going to try. The teachers have compromised and are only holding class in the fall. Confirmation Sunday will be in January this year. The families have compromised and have agreed to more committed attendance. We don't know if it will work. But what the teachers have been praying for and what you all can be praying for is that by means of this renegotiated compromise, something good will grow. That's what life is, isn't it? Negotiating and renegotiating, taking our faith one day at a time, keeping our eyes focused on the goal, but willing to make compromises on the means by which we get there. At the end of the parable, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Not just houses here on earth, into eternal homes. In the Greek, it's almost like a play on words. The word that Jesus uses here can be translated like tent. It's the word that's used for the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwells. It's like Jesus is saying that somehow, by means of our earthly decisions, compromises, actions, relationships, by means we don't expect, that's how the kingdom of heaven breaks in. And haven't we heard that before? Because in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. The Holy One pitched his tent right here in our midst. And even though he was in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Maybe. We find in the dishonest manager not so much an image of ourselves, but an image of Jesus, who stood in the middle between heaven and earth, who was not afraid to get his hands dirty, 
who came to be with us, to get into our homes and into our lives, who experienced a criminal's death, and who somehow, by means that you would never expect, sweeps us all up with him heavenward and makes debtors right with God. It's that kind of work we're meant to emulate. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And God was entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Reading the parable through that lens, maybe, it's like Jesus is saying, I have come to meet you where you are and draw you close to God by whatever means necessary. Go and do likewise. Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.